It's Thursday, October 8th, and you are listening to the 15th episode of Combing the Stacks. We are a music podcast covering six decades of music, three albums at a time. Each week we dig into the top 100 albums of the 1960s, as identified by our friends at the website besteveralbums.com. Your hosts for tonight's episode are three men, John, Josh, and Matt, but sadly, no little lady. This week we will be covering albums number 59, 58, and 54 as we charge into the month of October. We start things off with a return to the catalog of the Kinks, this time with John covering the album Something Else from 1967. The album is the last produced by Shell Tell Me, who was at the helm for their first four albums. Our second segment sees us doing another return to an artist catalog, this time the Mothers of Invention and their double album Freak Out. The album is both their debut and one of the first concept albums ever recorded. In our final segment, we learn more about the Bossa Nova movement through the work of Stan Getz and Joao Gilberto and their album Getz and Gilberto. The album, released in 1964, won the Grammy for Best Album in 1965. Don't worry, at Combing the Stacks, we shake the trees and rake the leaves in search of the best 60s content possible. See you inside. Thursday, second week of October. It is the Combing the Stacks podcast with John, Josh, and Matt. We've got so much to cover today. We've got tons of cleaning of the stacks. We've got a little bit of a talk about uh, Van Halen, one of my all-time favorite bands. We've got three very interesting albums, so we're not going to waste any time. I do want to check in, though, with the rest of the team. Josh, how are you? Doing well, doing well. Feeling a little melancholy about Van Halen, but I've been listening to them to soothe my sadness but yes it's been good that's a good way to soothe and it basically we we're going to celebrate the entire catalog tonight as we talked about before and uh matt how about you 
I'm doing well. I'm probably doing better than you are, John. I know that Eddie was a uh, was a, probably a hero of yours. And I, I would also have to probably start off with an argument right away. I don't think you want to celebrate their entire catalog because that would include Sammy Hagar, Van Halen. And I know how you feel about that. Well, you know, the Sammy Hagar era was hit and miss, and probably the Gary Sharoon era no one should celebrate. Oh, I but, forgot about that. That's, yes, but we'll, yeah, that's we'll, probably a good thing that I forgot about that. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit after we clean the stacks. And, uh, you know, because we've got so much to cover, I know we normally banter a little bit longer, but uh, let's start because we had quite a few dangling ends last week of things that we wanted to touch base with. Hanging like each chads. Of us, hanging chads in election season. Ooh, Perfect. Time. Yes. Well done, John. And uh, these hanging chads that we uh, need to unhang or cut down, I guess. Uh, each of us were kind of given a homework assignment to to research something and then uh, come back to it. Um, and so let's go ahead and do that. We'll talk a little bit about Van Halen after that, and then we'll get into these albums. So maybe Matt, let's start with you. I know that last week in talking about Miles Davis, we talked about the famous French actress Juliette Greco. And boy, is there some some stuff that was very uh, interesting in terms of the timing of her life. Yeah, and I and I'm I'll go I'll just go over some brief things that I found out about Juliette Greco. But I know John, you too maybe did some research. So if there, I didn't cover anything you feel is worth mentioning, then feel free to jump in. But so Juliet I will come Greco, in hot, Matt. Come in come hot. In hot. Yep. Please, please don't hold back. Yeah. Um, so Juliet Greco, as we mentioned last time, not only was a French, I think I just said that she was a French actress, but she was also a French uh, musician, singer in particular. And she had several albums um, and you can find some of her music on Spotify. Uh, but she grew up with a mother who never really wanted her and said that would tell her as a child that she was actually a child of rape. So. What horrible, horrible parenting right there to start off with. So she did not have a good uh, uh, a childhood. And then to top that off, she was eventually, uh, her family was part of the resistance in France um, leading up to World War II, and she was eventually captured and tortured by the Gestapo. Um, but for some reason, while her mother and sister were, were still in, in um, concentration camps, she was released several months after her capture. I don't know exactly why, but... Um, but after the war, she became part of the bohemian lifestyle in France and hung out with people such as philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre. And she won the affection of many, including John Lennon and Paul McCartney. And I'm sorry, I got to bring the Beatles back to this, but they were mentioned. Um, and McCartney actually admitted that the song Michelle was inspired by her, which oh, I never knew because he's nice. got all that. If you know that song, he sings in, um, in, in French. In French, yeah. Yep. So he was there very uh, smitten by Miss Greco. She was a muse um, for many. Yeah, she's almost like a Nico of, uh, of I don't know, the, the 50s or 40s yeah. and 50s maybe. It's amazing how it kind of all rolls together, doesn't it? As, as you know, we'll talk about with, I think, probably what you're going to go to next. But, yes, yeah, she is in many ways. You're 100% right, Matt. Yep. We talked about Nico being the uh, muse for the 60s. She was sort of the muse for many musicians in the 50s to carry forward. And Matt, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, Matt, what's her most well-known role or movie? Do you know? Oh, that I don't know. What okay. is it, Josh? I don't know. I was hoping you'd tell me. <laughs> she was in a film version of a Hemingway novel. I'm trying to remember. Might be The Sun Also Rises. Um, that sounds I, good. 
Yeah, I can look into that. Um, well, but go ahead, Matt. Continue. Uh, I'll, yeah, keep I'll have the answer. Most oddly enough, and it's probably the strangest thing in the research on her, I thought that she had died years ago because, you know, you, just, you assume that when you, you're hearing stories about people like this that they're just not alive anymore. But she actually passed away two weeks ago tonight. So a week ago, uh, two, uh, you know, a week basically from the time that we recorded the last podcast, she died at the age of 93 on September 23rd, 2020. Um, so that's happened a couple of times. I think Charlie Daniels died shortly, you know, kind of around the time that we were talking about, um, you know, his role in Bob Dylan's album, Nashville Skyline. Uh, Towns Van Zant died, mm-hmm. you know, um, not Towns well, Van Zant. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, no, no. It was, um, oh, uh, Stephen uh, Earl, St- Steve Earl's kid. Shoot. Yep. Steve Earl's kid. Yep. Yep. Justin Towns Earl. That's it. I needed mm-hmm. a second. So he died like around the time that Towns Van Zant was covered. So yeah, a lot of things are coming full We're like the Grim Reaper ways. of podcasts. So <laughs> yeah, we are careful who we talk about. <laughs> Watch out, John Fogarty. Start the death clock. <laughs> I know if you're in, if you're in CCR or, or the who you're in trouble. <laughs> so that's, that's all I had on Juliet Greco. I didn't want to go too deep. John, I don't know if you had anything else to add on her. No, she just she just had a remarkable life in terms of how many people she was around and influenced. She was called the muse of the philosophers, um, so and and authors, um, and she seemed to be at the center of French society from the early fifties until the seventies, and sort of remained like a cultural treasure. So there's all kinds of salacious stories about her as well, which we will not share out of respect. And not all of them are bad, salacious, more like celebrity, right? You know, relationships and, you know, spilling was, of the tea. Mm-hmm. She was what you might call a spicy dish, I would say. Um, <laughs> Certainly. <laughs> right, let's spicy. go with that. <laughs> what, uh, so, John, maybe you could post something to uh, to Twitter about her. If you haven't already, uh, I'd, I'd be I'd be happy to. It is the sun also rises, by the way, um, oh. that she that that she was in. So um, yeah, John's John's cleaning the stacks on the spot. That's 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 a quick quick draw there, John. Good job. Mm-hmm. There we go. So I have so, a, well, just I have a couple more just real quick things. First of all, going I was going to mention this last time, but I, I forgot during we got so into it I forgot to mention it. The writer we were talking about uh, Creedence Clear, Clearwater Revival covering the night time is the right time. Yes. And if we we keep talking about names in the '60s that are just fantastic names, and John's actually going to be talking about one of them in a second. But the person that wrote that song, his name is Nappy Brown, mm-hmm. which is short for Napoleon Brown Goodsup Goodson Culp. Oh, who nice. was some dude was like a songwriter so i just i had to point that out that um that was if that's a fantastic name and he went by nappy brown um so and then finally this is not really a cleaning of the sacks this is kind of, I, I felt like i had to share the story because i was talking to my parents last night who are or earlier today and they last night were part of a, a music trivia uh contest at their near where they live and I guess there were like 25 different teams. And my mom was telling me that they were in first place up until the last round. And I, and then she's like, we got, we, we bombed, we didn't get anything right. And we dropped down to third. And I was like, okay, well, what questions did you get? Uh, maybe I know them. You guys, John in particular, not going to believe like, so the first question was what member of C- Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young tried out for the monkeys and was rejected. <laughs> yeah, nice. So your parents clearly don't listen to the podcast. I was, is what I, you're saying. I was yes. like, and I told my mom, I was like, well, mom, if you listen to our podcast, you would know that the answer is Stephen Stills. And then she's like, no way. So she was surprised by that. She's like, all right, well, here's the next one. What rocker had to change his name when Davy Jones became famous so as not to be confused with him? And Once I said, again. Mom, 
podcast, David <laughs> Bowie, right? And finally, the Monkees were the, one of the first bands or musicians to use this instrument on an album. <laughs> it's literally all of our running jokes, it isn't really it? It really is. Yeah. Yeah. The, mo- the, the, ooh, Moog. the Moog. Moog synthesizer, yeah. right. So um, I, I hope that my parents might start listening, or anybody else, if you want to do well at music trivia, this is a good place to come to because chances are they're going to be covering some of the topics that we talk about. It also goes back to my constant line that the Monkees were as important a band in the 60s as, as any band in terms of the cachet of their cultural cachet because they show up all over the place in different stuff. They really so. do. Mm-hmm. I mean, we drop so much knowledge in every episode. You, you should be ready for a trivia podcast with our, with our show. And, they, and might, there you go. They, might, they might even pop up again tonight. Ooh, That's a little okay. tease. A little tease. Okay, I like it. Well, speaking of teases, Josh... The, the tease of the group. <laughs> I, I, think that you, yeah, I think that you are going to speak to us about a little unknown thing that you and I were, uh, I wouldn't say arguing, but talking about last week. Oh, yes. A will of the wisp. A will of the wisp. Oh, that's right. You guys were totally in the like 180s from each other. So uh, where are we, Josh? No, yeah, no, no, not, right? not 180s. No. But we go were, ahead, Josh. Somebody we were, said it was a constellation. The other one said it was a ghost. No, we were both right. Um, Oh. Will o' the Wisp is an atmospheric ghost light seen by travelers at night, especially over bogs, swamps, or marshes. And in folklore, it is said to mislead travelers. And it is natural phenomenon is caused by um, natural gases that combust in contact with oxygen. So gases that are escaping from the bogs and stuff then hit the oxygen and, and create this natural light phenomenon. There is so much on Will of the Wisp on the internet <laughs> that there was more about Will of the Wisp on Wikipedia than about Zhao Gilberto. Gilberto. So that oh, kind wow, of an, okay. that kind of annoyed me actually. Um, <laughs> but Will of the Wisp exists in all uh, folklore around the world. There's some phenomenon that's like that, and then there's etymology about Will of the Wisp. Um, the term jack o' lantern originally referred to Will of the Wisp, and I could go on and on. But yep, that's that's the clarification for you. So it's a ghost-like constellation, ghost ghost-like uh, ghost light that ghost light misleads uh, travelers. I believe uh, that last week I said it was like a light formation, and Josh said it was like an apparition yes, figure, and exactly. it's like an apparition figure that is light. So basically, we yep. you know usually Josh and I can get about sixty percent of the way there, and then you know finish it up you know with our prior knowledge. As well, I say. had no idea, so uh, I, I had nothing to contribute. I couldn't even remember what context that came up in, but I was happy to research it. So. It was the song uh, by oh, Miles right. Davis. That's right. Yep. It's, will also, of the Wisp. it's also a card in the uh, game, the Dominion game, Josh. There's a Will of the Wisp card in Dominion. Oh. So for any gamers out there like John... I don't believe there's any. I don't believe there's any dorks that listen to our podcast. So only I think cool my brother does. Podcast. All right, well, one. But outside of that, you know, not too many, no. If you're if you're a gamer in not the video game sense, but in a board game sense, we welcome you into it and celebrate your hobby and passion, even if I won't be playing with you. So, um, and I had Speedy Keen, the well named Speedy Keen, in terms of as a. Rock figure. I think Speedy Keen is about as good a name as you can get. Um, a lot of what we talked about was 
of Speedy Keen is what we talked about last night. He, he or last week, he wrote Armenia City in the Sky for the Who on the Who Sellout. He was a session player for Rod Stewart and Kenny G, which I thought was funny that he did both of those. But most importantly about Speedy Keen for me, John, was that he was a record producer for both the Heartbreakers, but more importantly, he was the record producer for Motorhead's debut album, Motorhead. So that is probably his greatest claim to fame for me, the fact that along with the skill on the uh, keyboards and the Hammond organ and uh, drums and pretty much every instrument you could do, he was the record producer for Motorhead, Motorhead, for those that like it. And I do believe we cover that album. Um, What year was that, John? you know was was the initial motorhead, motorhead album oh gosh yeah. put me on the spot i want to say 78 okay. i'll look at it yeah i i don't know off the top of my head matt you really put me on the spot no right i just want to i wasn't looking specific so just general to know if are we covering it soon or is that something that comes up later so um did he um did he also do uh would you say that he, i forget that if he was um um like Oh, Pete Townsend's driver. Was he Pete Townsend's, Townsend's driver? He was. He was Pete Townsend's driver and errand boy. But that's for those that want to learn more about Speedy Keen, you can go back to our episode from last week where we do cover him a little bit and his connection to The Who, most notably, um, and Pete Townsend in particular. Uh, John Entwistle he was tight with as well. But um, um, he also was very friendly with Rod Stewart all the way from the faces all the way, small faces all the way up to Rod Stewart's solo phenomenon. So... Motorhead's self-titled album came out in 77. 77, so I was oh. off by a year. I apologize. That's good, John. That's so, good. Yeah, so I was, I was basically right about there. So, yeah, I wish I could give more about Speedy Key. He, he did a lot of different stuff in terms of who he played with. Um, you know, Dylan's in there and Eddie Cocker and some other folks. Certainly he was associated with Thunderclap Newman uh, as well, but I don't know if that's, that's a deep dive for today. So, um, but, yeah, that is Speedy Keen. Nice. So. Mm-hmm. Thanks for that. No problem. And we probably, before we get into the albums, uh, this is probably as good a time as any. Um, after this episode, I will be working on uh, my magnum opus, since we keep using that term all the time. <laughs> this, this will be my magnum opus of opening montages, but it's not going to even be an opening montage, of uh, some Eddie Van Halen work. Just a little three-minute spot that we're going to drop in right about now or at the end of when we talk about it.
just to give some context, if I were to make a list of my five favorite bands in the world, uh, Van Halen, especially the classic version of Van Halen with the Van Halen brothers, David Lee Roth and Mike Anthony, um, is in my top five bands of all time. And there's probably an argument to be made that they're the band I have listened to more than any other band in my life. Um, they're at least in the top three in terms of total listens of their work. So obviously, super bummer that uh, Eddie Van Halen passed away at the very young age of uh, 65. Um, many of my friends and many of my best moments, had, you know, driving down to the shore with friends, uh, listening to stuff, just putting on stuff in a good mood is Van Halen music in the background. Um, I don't know if you were going to construct a rock band the way they're supposed to look. I don't know if you could do much better than what classic Van Halen looked like in terms of the visual effect of the band. And if you're not familiar with their work, especially their first six albums, um, they're the, an easy band to binge on, um, speaking as someone who's done it often. And yeah, so, uh, you know, all the, all the best to his son, Wolfgang, and uh, both his current, his current wife and uh, his, his uh, first wife, Valerie Bertinelli, as well as his brother, Alex, and all the Van Halen fans around the world that say Chuck Klosterman, uh, Matt, I'm sure is, uh, you know, the biggest Van oh, Halen sure. fan I know. Yep. Yeah. I mean, um, we saw them, him to, we saw them together, John. They did. It was, it was one of the, it was a concert that we all went to, um, when they reunited. Um, did you I've, go to that one with us, John? And I thought that was after. I did not go with you guys. I, I actually went, I saw them three times after they reunited, um, right. but not, not with you guys. You guys went, as a separate uh, trip, yeah. Josh, so. Josh, and I went, and we were kind of in the very back row, yeah. uh, off to the side, and which ordinarily fine, whatever. But there were all these people that it was a very high trafficked area, so there was a lot of people inexplicably just behind us, hanging out, talking on their way to the bathroom or on the way to get food. So that partially ruined that for me, but it was still a cool show, man. They they that they they sounded great. And does a does a Van Halen can can a Van Halen even exist today? Because we talked about how. There aren't a lot of rock albums being made, and there certainly aren't a lot of riff-heavy rock albums being made. No, and then, you know, no. lyrical content. I mean, does does Van Halen? Are you able to write songs like Van Halen did about, you know, looking at beautiful women and fast cars, and or would they be considered to be toxic masculinity today? Or do you That's think the virtuoso nature of of Eddie would would shine through? That's a good question. I, yeah. I don't know. I don't. I don't. I never thought of that. So that I, I'm not sure. I think. And it, are we a better society that there can't be a Van Halen anymore, or are we a worse society, or is it just the, the uh, way of the world? These are profound questions, John. I'm not mm -hmm. prepared to answer. Yep, I was doing some <laughs> deep thinking in the aftermath of this. Was it, uh, John? Was it? Uh, was it cancer that he succumbed to, or did it you, was? It was. It yeah. was. Which alternate? He attributed to the pick that he kept in his mouth while he was doing his solos and finger tapping. Although, I, if I were to be honest, I would also make mention of the fact that as a smoker, that probably also had something to do with. He attributed what was going his on. cancer to holding a piece of plastic in his teeth. A metal. A metal. He had. A, he played with a metal pick. Um, oh. And, and oh. he he felt that. The, the pick that he played with, it was made of metal and other, um, uh, other things, you know, chemicals. Okay. And he, he, he personally attributed it to that. I don't hmm. know if it was just 
his own thinking. Um, like I said, you, you can look at a lot of early Van Halen and even mid Van Halen and Eddie is, you know, putting the cigarette on the top of the guitar while playing eruption and blowing, you know, smoke rings and stuff like that. So certainly I'm sure that didn't, you know, that's that's so badass. We're definitely worse (laughs) for not having people plaff cigarettes at the end of their guitars anymore. That's for sure. Yes, it's, it's, it kind of comes down once again to, you know, viewers can weigh in on that. And I probably there's a line of demarcation in terms of how people would view it. But certainly Van Halen is, is a band that I don't know if it can exist in the modern context. And I don't know whether to say it's of the era and you have to respect that it's of the era, but the time has passed. Or if that says more that there needs to be a space for that type of music as well. So I'm sure we can get a bunch of different things. But for me personally, I'd love to see some of that fun and style of music become prevalent again. We kind of so. we kind of had a little bit of that, but although it's a while ago, it's one of those things that seems like it's more recent than it is. But with the darkness, right? Like when they kind of came onto the scene, that was well past the heyday of, of, of that type of rock and roll. But, yeah, um, but the darkness were more inspired by I feel I feel like new wave of British heavy metal riffs mixed with like a Queen yeah. sort of stage performance. I don't know. I mean, but really, it's the, the closest thing I can think of, you know. Well, all of hair metal was obviously greatly influenced by Van Halen. Anybody playing power chords um, from the '80s and '90s, there are also very high-profile admirers of Van Halen who are on the record. You know, Billy Corgan, Weezer. I think, in fact, Weezer's next album is going to be, is called Van Weezer. So, I mean, <laughs> they, to give you an idea of how influenced they were. Wow. Um, but That's yeah, awesome. just uh, but just uh, a, a sad day. Definitely did not think that we would be talking about the passing of Eddie Van Halen uh, this early. Um, you yeah. know, and so. R.I.P. And uh, if you're not familiar with their catalog, please check it out. It is well worth a listen. And we're going to throw some Van Halen into this podcast just to give those of you who might not be familiar some context on what they sound like. Okay, so now let's get back to the 60s and let's talk about the albums we're covering this week. We've got three really interesting ones. Uh, We're going to close with uh, Getz and Gilberto. the album is the, the same as the uh, last names of the artists, and that's going to be in our segment three, covered by Josh. Uh, the middle one is going to be The Kinks, and I'm going to be covering that. Something Else or Something Else by The Kinks, depending on how you want to name it. It's alternately known by both. And we're going to start with a trip back into the catalog of Frank Zappa. Freak out, freak out. Uh, All right, so you, so so you want me to go of, first mm-hmm. now? I'm going first? Okay. Yeah, go, go first. Yeah. Oh, uh, it's, it's, uh, just so you know, the montage is going to be slightly different in terms of the order because I'm going to have the kinks first and then uh, uh, Frank Zappa second. But we like to keep things dynamic and ever-changing and keep you on your toes on Comedy You certainly stacks. keep me on my toes. I right. kept, in fact, I kept Matt on my toes because I forgot the order we're in, but we're just going to run with it because all why right. not? You know, we're, we're all prepared. That's fine. All right. Yeah. Here I, I'm the Mookie Wilson of this podcast, so let's, <laughs> let's, let's rock this out. There you go. All right, so uh, Mothers of Invention. This is the second record that we are uh, covering by them, and the final one in the opening montage of the podcast. You heard a clip from their track "I'm Not Satisfied," and now we're going to hear a little something from one of the singles from this record, "Trouble Every Day." <laughs> Well, I'm about to get sick from watching my TV. 
Checking out the news, I tell my eyeballs fail to see I mean to say that every day is just another rotten mess And when it's gonna change, my friend, is anybody's guess So I'm watching and I'm waiting, hoping for the best Even think I'll go to praying Every time I hear them saying that there's no way to delay That trouble coming every day No way to delay that trouble coming every day we're back and so this album is uh number 57 on our list it's freak out by the mothers of invention it was released in 1966 um it's actually number 56 now on the list of best ever albums so since we compiled our list it's moved up a sp- or moved i'm sorry moved uh down a spot so uh i'm sorry it moved up a spot from when we covered it or when we originally came up with a list so uh they're doing better than a couple months ago um, it was number five in 1966 and number 440 overall, and it's the debut album from the Mothers of Invention. So I did a little bit of history of Mothers of Invention uh, in, in the previous podcast. I think that was maybe three or four episodes ago. Um, but So I'm not going to go much more into the history of them, but I, I will say that uh, just kind of a reminder that this was a kind of a surprise album because when they were signed by producer Tom Wilson, who we've talked about extensively as well, he was signing them um, under total (laughs) with a different expectation than, uh, than what he got with what this record is. Um, It was recorded over four days in March of uh, from in March of 1966. And it was released on June 27th of, of 1966. So a quick turnaround um, for, for this record it's considered one of the first concept albums and one of the first double albums. Um, I read somewhere that it was second, the second double album ever released behind Dylan's Blonde on Blonde. And if you look at the release dates between these two albums, it's, sep- it's like a week or two separates them. So it's, it's right up there as one of the first double albums that was ever released. Um, let's go back here. Let's see if we can do some trivia and put you guys on the spot. So if you guys recall from the first podcast about Mothers of Invention... Tom Wilson saw the band play at a club. He saw them play one song, and based on the what he heard from that song, uh, he decided to sign them because he was trying. His task was to sign the next Rolling Stones. And then when they started recording, he walked in on them playing a totally different sounding song, and was very surprised and taken aback by that. Can you guys guess? Because both of those songs are on this record. Do you have any guess as to the song that Tom Wilson saw them play? And then the song that he saw them first playing when they were recording that was totally different. Oh, man. Well, were they playing Trouble Every Day? Yes, that was the Trouble Every Day was the was the blues song. Right. Yep. And it's, it's easily the bluesiest rock, uh, you know, inspired song on this record. Yep. And so that was the song that he saw them play that inspired him to sign them. And then he goes into the first day of recording and they are playing. I'm going to guess who are the brain police. You got it. Who are the brain yeah. police, which <laughs> is probably. And I promise I didn't Wikipedia that or Google it while we were talking. Well, it's, 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 it's it stands out though. Right. Cause as soon as it I just heard, seemed very, very different than trouble yes. every day. <laughs> and I would say who are the brain police, maybe with the exception of the last two tracks on this record is, is, is probably the, the certainly the last. Yes. The definitely, well, the salt last one's not even a song really. Um, Unless but you like screaming monsters. Yeah, it's right. Exactly. It's like, exactly. Um, but yeah, good job. So that's very true. So so that kind of speaks to the variety of this record. 
Um, so um, I'll get it to also that. speaks He's, to how good we're becoming at our jobs, Matt. It is. You guys, you guys <laughs> know, we know each other. We, they, we're, just, I, we're just, we're just clicking so, so well here. We're you a know, regular Tom Wilson. And, and Tom Wilson, <laughs> by the way, is a combing the stacks in his own right as pretty much the only African-American producer of renown uh, throughout the 60s. He's a fascinating dude who's always dressed in an incredible suit when you see pictures of him, just as an FYI. So, yeah, he's, Matt, he's if a, you want a homework assignment. Okay, I will look at his suits and I will tell you who, uh, who, who was his tailor. Um, but yeah, Tom Wilson is a combing the stacks legend, turning into at least anyway. He is. Um, first ballot. First, <laughs> first ballot Hall of Fame, CTS. So this record is a satire. Surprise, surprise. Frank Zappa's doing a satire. Um, seen as a satire of Zappa's perception of American pop culture and the freak scene of Los Angeles. Classic Rock Magazine named it one of the top 50 albums that built prog rock, which I didn't think of that when I was listening to this record as like a prog rock album. But after reading that, it's it seemed to make some sense. I see what they're saying with that because... You know the structures of these songs and just the variety of what they're doing. You know it it, it does there does come off as slightly proggy. I think um, there were three singles that were released with this record: "How Can I Be Such a Fool," "Trouble Coming Every Day," and "Motherly Love." And then I've just got a couple of quotes about this record, which I found were were interesting. Um, in a 1968 article written for Hit Parader magazine, Zappa wrote that when Wilson heard the songs, he was, quote, so impressed he got on the phone and called New York. And as a result, I got a more or less unlimited budget to do this monstrosity, which gave me a little chuckle because I'm sure that didn't happen at all. <laughs> um and then Zappa later said about the record, if you were to graphically analyze the different types of directions of all the songs in the Freak Out album, there's a little something in there for everybody. At least one piece of material is slanted for every type of social orientation within our consumer group, which happens to be 6 to 80. Because we got people like that like what we do from kids 6 years old screaming on us to play Wowie Zowie. Like, I meet executives doing this and that, and they say, my kids got the record, and Wowie Zowie is their favorite song. Um, and I thought that that was kind of an interesting take because I, I, I see what he's saying here because when you listen to the record, there's, it's like I said, there's a lot of variety. There's a lot of different sounds, different genres kind of fusing together. Um, and the, the record's kind of, it's kind of all over the place, but it also kind of gels at the same time. And then a couple of other funny anecdotes. Zappa later found out that when the material was recorded, producer Tom Wilson had taken LSD and his quote was and, and Zappa's quote was I've tried to imagine what Wilson must have been thinking sitting in that control room listening to all that weird shit coming out of the speakers and being responsible for telling the engineer who was not on acid what to do it reached number 130 on the billboard charts and was neither a commercial nor critical success but it did gain notoriety and appreciation from the underground scene and uh, the mothers of invention with this record and with subsequent records as well they were a more popular group in uh, the United Kingdom and in Europe in general. Uh, they, that they had more success overseas than did in the U.S. Um, Pete Johnson of the L.A. Times had an interesting quote uh, to, uh, to say about the record. He said, I guess you might call it surre surrealistic painting set to music, not content to record just two sides of musical gibberish. The mothers of invention devote four full sides to their type of, quote, art artistry. If anyone owns this album, perhaps he can tell me what in the hell is going on. The Mothers of Invention, a talented but warped quintet, have fathered an album poetically entitled Freak Out, which could be the greatest stimulus to the aspirin industry since the income tax. Mixed results, to say the least. 
Indeed. Yes. Finally, um, this was an influence on the, again, I'm bringing up the Beatles because they just, they pop up. I'm not doing it on purpose. They're just there. Um, but McCartney said, it had an influence on the Beatles with McCartney saying that Sgt. Pepper was the Beatles freak out. Take that for what you will. I don't know if we needed that fact in there. That was, just seems like a gratuitous Beatles fact right <laughs> well, there. Man. It's, I'm not it's, gonna it's lie. what I read, John. So if I'm reading it, it's got to be worth mentioning. I'm going to cut it out. Oh, oh there you go. <laughs> just so, kidding. <laughs> that's about all I got because I think, like I said, we covered a lot of their history. This is their first record. Um, the other album that we covered was uh, We're Only In It For The Money, which came out um, was their third record. So um, what did we think of this album? Let's start with you, Josh. Uh, I didn't really like this album that much um and i didn't even look to see where this album fell in comparison to the previous album but i can tell that this album is earlier because a it's much more structured and traditional there's actual songs on here versus we're only in it for the money which was even more all over the place than this album one of the main things that i don't like about this album is the singing or lack of singing I do not like Frank Zappa's voice or whoever is the lead singer on the Mothers of Invention. It's pretty monotone and he is it's almost like he's talk singing. He's not even actually singing a lot of time and and I, I didn't like that. So for as strong as some of the music in the songs are and some of the the hooks that get stuck in your head like Hungry Freaks Daddy and Motherly Love, that chorus was really good. Um, I did not it just kept coming back to the singing for me and it it was very distracting now my favorite song and clearly the best song on this album is trouble every day that is like a bona fide hit in my opinion and and a, it just stands head and shoulders to me above everything else on this album even above like wowie zowie or who are the brain police, which I didn't really like. And so if they would make more songs like that, then, I mean, that's a testament to his talent and however much the mothers of invention collaborated with Frank Zappa, but um, then that would go a long way to me. Uh, I'm liking this album more. Are Cheech and Chong on this album? One of the <laughs> one of the songs sounds like they are singing on the album. <laughs> You're right, it does. Uh, uh, they are not credited. Okay. Uh, Cheech and Chong are not credited on this album. I don't know who that is because there's definitely kind of like a like a Latino voice that's yeah. out here. That's like almost like a stereotypical like Cheech and Chong, you know, uh, kind of uh, tone or inflection. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not exactly sure who that is. There's been a number. I mean, they're basically all the members of the band are credited with some form of the vocals. Um, so I, I don't know who that is, Josh. That's a, that's a good it's question. Pr- it's probably a little early for Cheech and Chong. I think they were hit more in the 70s. But um, Oh, the other thing I want to say is that there's too much kazoo in this album. And I hate that <laughs> I knew shit. that was coming up. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so I actually I kept going back and forth. But I think I like We're Only In It for the Money more than this album, actually. So, um, yes, those are my those are my thoughts. Okay. I'm right. freak out. Thumbs down on the freak out for Josh. Is not much of a freak. Uh, John, what about you? Where's, where's your freak lie? Oh boy. Um, I, this is a hard album for me to analyze. Cause there's definitely things I like about it. Um, especially about midway through the album, the album starts to take on more of a structure. And I, 
it's a structure that I really like. Um, I would say from probably about any way the wind blows until about Trouble Every Day, there's a stretch of about five songs that I really feel are the best part of the album. Um, he, Frank Zappa knows how to write a hook while the rest of the song isn't moored to anything in terms of traditional structure. And I, I know he was playing around with time structures themselves in music and free form and you know going out being unrooted from traditional song structures but it's funny that a guy can write such good choruses without having really anything building up to it i'd say um one thing i will say about a mother's invention frank's app from the 60s you know you were listening to stuff from the 60s the stuff does not age timelessly um the the commentary the sound pretty much everything sound screams like 60s. Um, I will say I never in a million years thought that when I would talk about how much I like doo-wop that it would be in the context of Frank Zappa, but he has several <laughs> songs that are doo-wop that I actually really like, and I know that some of them are designed to be tongue-in-cheek, but I also know that he, he did like doo-wop, but he hated sort of mm-hmm. what the songs were about, mm-hmm. and you could tell he listened to a ton of it because he, do- he does solid doo-wop type songs. Um, so I, 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 it's just it's just too long. It's too long. An hour is too long for this album. There's too much filler. I know it's ambitious. I think even Frank Zappa smile like himself would probably, if you you gave him truth serum, say this album was too long and maybe even by design. Um, and I know that the last track was supposed to be even longer than it was, and it yes. didn't end up going that long, which is remarkable to me because it's st- once you get to that point, you're like, okay, this album's. This album said everything it needs to say, and I don't know if it needs an additional 12 minutes at the end tacked on. Um, And so that seemed to me to be as gratuitous as anything that we've covered on Combing the Stacks, maybe uh, in line with whatever that thing The Doors would have done if they were allowed to record that freeform piece (laughs) on the album we've covered. uh, The song that that you're referring to, John, is the last track, Return of the Monster Magnet. And so the story behind that is in the middle of the week, because this was, again, this album was recorded in like, four days which is, mm-hmm. is you know is it, it was very they were in and they were out um but in the middle of the recording zappa told producer tom wilson that i quote i would like to rent five hundred dollars worth of percussion equipment for a session that starts at midnight on friday and i want to bring all the freaks from sunset boulevard into the studio to do something special and somehow wilson said okay that sounds good so, well and it's almost like you're you're getting trolled by him here which i guess right. is part of what the idea is for Frank Zappa, and I felt yeah. like the whole last album we covered was the equivalent of, you know, 1967 trolling. And this isn't quite like that. Like Josh mentioned, there's a lot more traditional song structure. But uh, it, uh, for me personally, um, if CCR is, for example, timeless, um, I would argue that, and some bands actually grow with influence. Like when we talked about the Monks, Matt, and that thing, that mm-hmm. they sound like they should have come 10 years later. Than they were. I feel like Frank, the mothers of invention, they sound like they're from the '60s, and they they don't really. I I get the feeling that like if you were listening to them in the moment, you you think of them as edgy and of the time and avant garde. But the second you kind of get out of the era and listen to it with new with new ears, uh, you can appreciate the ambitiousness of it. But boy, I'd rather listen to more timeless ambitious stuff or like more modern ambitious stuff and as josh said there are some songs that are just savaged and ruined by the kazoo you know just blowing in and just 
over choruses that otherwise would be good. You know, like in my head, I can hear like, like, you know, the, yeah. the, that one riff he played over and over again in a couple different songs. And you're like, oh, if it was in one song, sure. But once it gets to the fourth song with Kazoo in it, it's like, okay, enough. So, but Matt, what about you? I, don't, I, I so, actually don't know how you'd feel about this album. It is one you covered, which usually means you like it more than you normally would, even if you would normally hate it. But it also, I don't know. What's your, what's your take? So I, I, I was surprised and pleasantly surprised early on to hear that that structure being there, right? Because I, even though I appreciated we're only in it for the money, that's, I agree. I think our, part of our assessment, and I think, John, you were the first one to say it, was that it didn't have a whole lot of re-listenability. Like, I think there's an appreciation for what it is, but it's not something I'm going to go back to, right? So when I right. first started listening to this, I'm like, okay, songs like that are like two, three, four minutes long. Yep that are rooted in something. Okay. So I was in at fact, first, my initial reaction was, okay, now this is something I can kind of listen to. And a little bit of trivia for the listeners. It is, John, what I, I, say? I, I, I was going to say that I um, grade all of the albums out of 60. And one of the six categories I use is re-listenability. And the first Mothers of Invention album was one of two albums that earned a solid zero on the re-listenability <laughs> along with Chelsea Girl from last week. So to give you an idea on that. I was going to say, it's got to be now, Nico. It scored much better yeah. than Nico, but at the same time, the re-listenability was right. a zip for me. Yeah, yeah. Which, if that's, if, I mean, let's say, if, it's, if, if you're not going to listen to it again, then it's basically, that's the, that's the defining characteristic, right? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, anyway, so I... I, I did like this album, um, and I listened to it a lot. It's one of those things that I knew early on, you know, with, with albums like this, this is, again, this is not something for me anyway that I can listen to a couple of times and feel like I, I have a grasp on it. This There's so much going on here with the different sounds and the background things. I like listening to stuff like this on headphones, which I've been trying to do more and more. So um, I gave this, I feel like I really gave this album a fair shake list, listening-wise. Um and there's certainly some throwaway stuff. Like I, there's no way that I want to listen to the return of the sun, return of the son of the monster magnet, the 12th minute last track, which is just noise. Right. I didn't really want to listen to it. Can't happen here, which is the song before that. That's just like kind of a little bit more structure, but kind of just it's it, whatever. They're just playing around. It sounds like they're kind of goofing around, but there's a solid sec section here. The middle part of this album, I really like basically from track six. How could I be such a fool? through help on a rock. I really liked, you know, and yeah, I, you, the, you and I agree with that. That's almost the same period. I liked a lot. Yeah. And the more, and, and I, and I still think that the first five songs are decent, right? Like the, who are the brain police? Probably one of my least favorite songs on the record, but it starts off. Okay. Um, and I think that that's one of the things I did like about this record is that it gets better as it goes along. I mean, it's, it, you can stop after the last two, before the last two tracks come on as far as I'm concerned, but Records that kind of build and get better as they go on, I have a, a special appreciation for. Um, it gives you something to look forward to. But um, there's some really good stuff on here. Like Wowie Zowie sounded like a goofy song the first time I heard it. I was like, oh, whatever. But the more I listened to it, the more I heard in it. And I was like, this is really catchy. It's a very, you know, um, and, and and I I see everything that Josh is saying about the vocals, about, um, you know, it's just, it's just too, it's too weird or it's just, it's, it's not something that, you really want to go back to i get why all those things would be there and ordinarily i think i would agree but i just felt like as as the week went on and i was listening to this more um i i, I wasn't annoyed by it i kind of liked it i found myself 
singing along to it and I found myself dancing along to it and just feeling a little getting more into it and even though with some of the some of the uh, uh, the chord structures and the, and the progressions they, they seem some of these places it seems like it's not something that I would really gravitate towards normally that it seems a little off but there's something about the style here and I can't really put my finger on it. it's just a, a feel but I felt like it, it ended up working for me um, I don't know if I'm gonna, you know, I, I'm gonna. This is gonna be something I play over and over again. But I could definitely see myself going back to this, and I, I absolutely like this better than we're only in it for the money. Um, and and songs like yes, trouble every day. As soon as you hear that, you're like, wow, what a great song. You know, I listen to that over, and it's it's not it's it's a little repetitive, but it's repetitive in the good way because it's just that riff that he's playing and the way he's singing. It's it's so good. I could listen to five more minutes of that. So I I like this record. Um, I, I think there's definitely some parts you can skip over, particularly the end, but this is very solid in particular, the middle part. Is it me or does his satire not age well? Cause I know in his moment he was considered to be this sharp satirist, but as I listen to it with a modern sensibility, it, <laughs> the only thing I compare it to is contemporaries. Like when we listen to those CCR uh, pieces, you know, political commentary or, even the Sly and the Family Stone album, just different albums we've had, they still sound vibrant, right? But a lot of what Frank Zappa's commentary is, I can understand why at the time it was considered cutting, but it, I don't know if it's, we know more about what he was satirizing now with eyes in the in the future, um, but it's, it seems as dated listening to it now as listening mm -hmm. to like an Adam Sandler comedy album or like the Jerky Boys would for like a modern person, right? You know, for compared to someone who listened to it in, I don't know, like 1993, right? When it seemed like it was, oh, the super edgy stuff. And now it's just sort of like, I don't know. That's part mm -hmm. of what the problem is for me. It's like, I know yeah. it's supposed to be profound and it's supposed to be wink, you know, wink and nod smartest guy in the room, but it seems like very obvious satire to me like oh doo-wop songs are kind of empty and sugary how about that i never thought of that oh hippie you know hippies are kind of easily persuadable i felt like that that bowie album did a much better job of bringing that across in a mm -hmm. way that seemed like sharp satire than this did which is saying it and then throwing some kazoo in it yeah, yeah i wouldn't oh god josh i was gonna say it i mean his it's not very subtle at all right that his satire is is pretty on the nose and the lyrics aren't as like uh, inside the news i would yeah. say on top yeah and um i i think what's annoying to me is a double albums are rarely like worth it right they they are always too long and there's a lot of filler i mean we could have a whole side discussion or bonus episode on double albums but um i think what annoys me the most about mothers of invention or frank zappa is that i can tell he has talent but it, it's like he's wasting it in a way that I just, agree totally. just annoys me like, <laughs> i agree especially when he busts out guitar riffs that you could see he has high levels of technical proficiency and then it's just yeah i agree yeah. 1000 percent, josh like just dial it back a little frank like you know we can tell you yeah. you are talented and you, you can rock the guitar and that you your influences with doo-wop or at least your love of doo-wop like do something with that not just just don't like go so off the deep end yeah, and, I, and that's I, where that Captain Beefheart album, I feel like, refined mm -hmm. all of that, you know, and mm -hmm. kept a blues groove. And it was such an easy listen. I know, you know, as Josh described them as frenemies, um, I, I like the take that Captain Beefheart did as sort of an iconoclast, maybe more so than I do, you know, what I'm learning about Frank Zappa. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that that's something that Captain Beefheart is something that I enjoyed more. Um, and I that's that's a good point. I think that 
you know, Zappa probably could, as far as my tastes go, could could do better, right? But this is also part of who he, like, his whole thing was to kind of, like, go against the grain. You know, that was a yeah. very big part of who he was. Um, you know, there's, like, stories of him, even from when he was a kid, because he was just very much into more of the avant-garde stuff. Like, the cla- he was very into classical music, and not just, like, regular classical music, like, very kind of avant-garde classical music to the point for his, there was a thing for his, like, his 15th birthday his mother said, well, what do you want? He goes, I want to be able to place a, a long distance phone call to this, you know, classical composer over in France, or maybe he was a new, it was a French composer that was living in New York. Yeah. So somehow he find, he gets the guy's number, right. And he calls him up. He ends up not being there. He talks to his wife, but later on he established a relationship <laughs> with him, but he was 15 years old. And he's like, I want to just call this guy. Well, he you read know? an article, didn't he about it? And the, the idea yes. was that Sam Goody had every album you could possibly find. Right. And right. they used this guy's album as the, like, can you believe they even have this basically crap? And then Frank Zappa's like, I need to find this album. And yeah. spends a, that also goes to show how different times are, right? He spends a year looking for this album, whereas now we could be like, all right, let's listen to this crap on Spotify. Exactly. Like and five went, seconds later. And I pulled it up on Spotify and I'm listening to it. I'm like, man, this is so like, this is, I'm cheating, you know, because that's what people are talking about, trying to find these records, you know, that, that you can't, that you can't come across. Um, so yeah, but so I, I guess that's all to say is that's part of who he was and that's what he was trying to do. Um, but yes, I could, I think he probably could have put forth an effort towards his music that would be much more popular, right. And be much more, um, accessible for people. And I would probably like it more too. I would agree with that. Uh, but I also, you know, at the end of the day, you know, there's some things that were hit and miss here, but, um, yeah, he's, he's an interesting dude, man. And there's like the other thing is too, and I didn't want to go too much into his, like his, uh, you know, his, like his individuality. Cause I know John, you're covering a solo album. So I want to give you time yes. to talk about him, but there's a clip. If you get a chance and maybe that's something we could post on Twitter, if I can figure that out. Um, he's on the Steve Allen show when he's like in 1963 and he's on there for like 15 minutes explaining how he plays the bicycle as a musical instrument. And he ends up playing like he and, and Steve Allen's like, how long have you been playing the bicycle there, Frank? Like joking around. And Frank's like, oh, about two weeks. You know, he's like and he shows well, him all these different that's... ways he's playing the bicycle. And then he plays and then he instructs an orchestra while he's playing the bicycle along with it as like part of this comedy show. But it's it's pretty funny. Like he's his he's whole vibe is. Guy too cool for the room like there's so many yeah. clips on youtube of like frank zappa's incredible wit and, and you watch it and once again it just seems of another era you know like oh that was you know i guess he, like he just try, cool he's trying too room, hard detached yeah it's almost like it feels like trying too hard like i don't want to say pseudo intellectualism because he's definitely a bright guy yes. but i definitely i would argue that sometimes when you just do things to do them and never really commit to doing things great. I, I think like, I'm in the Josh category where it's like, mm-hmm. I would have loved to have seen you like try to make a great pop album and see if you can do it. But if you never do it and you just kind of say, that's not what I'm doing, part of me wonders like how, you know, you can be a genius and also, I, I'm, I'm not against complicated, avant-garde. I mean, I think we know, and, jo- and Matt, I know you, I know Josh, your palette's a little bit more structured, but you and I, Matt, like we, we will... We'll delve into stuff that's, you know, complicated or um, you know, sophisticated, but I, that's not what I, I, like I said, I appreciate it, but I it doesn't hit home for me in the way that other yeah. stuff does. And, I would, and I'm going to just leave it at, I'm gonna, for me, I'm going to leave it at that for right now. I, yeah. I would agree with that, John. I, I, and I think that even though it sounds like I think I like this album more than, more than you guys did, 
I, I would agree with a lot of that. Um, uh, you know, when you hear people like just talk about how great Frank Zappa is, um, I think I have a better understanding of that, at least not because I didn't really know any of his stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so and I think there's plenty of more stuff that he did uh, when we're only going to do one more album, really, that he that his solo album. Um, but uh, I would I would agree with that. But I, I, I appreciate the fact now that I have a little more insight into what he was doing um, and that I do. I'm glad that I found a record here that I that I do like because I don't think we're only in front of the money was going to be that record for me. But I think that this is more of that um, because I definitely found some stuff in here very interesting and good and catchy. Um, some interesting horn playing in the background, some very melodic things that were happening and some very avant-garde things like um, Help on a Rock is very is, 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 is very non-traditional, but it's I could listen to that for a while too. That let that guitar part that they're playing and, and, and what they're doing there, even though it ends and it does end with a female orgasm. That's also very interesting. That'll be, yeah. It's like, okay, let's just have this woman get off at the very end of the, of the, of the song. Um, but even stuff like that, I really liked. So, um, uh, you know, so I'm glad that this is here. I would also say, Josh, you bring up a double album. This, this record's only just over an hour. And so it's almost like the, the double album today doesn't really exist because if you had back in the day when you had CDs, cause CDs aren't even really a thing anymore. Right. CDs would go almost 80 minutes, right? Yeah. And then not a double, like the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Blood Sugar, Sex Magic is like 78 minutes long. It's a single album, right? That's, that's almost, that's like 20 minutes longer than this. Um, so and now with Spotify, there is no limit. Are gone. Yeah, yeah I think no John limit. and you and I were talking about this the other day. It's like it's a totally different kind mm -hmm. of thing. So um, the concept of double album is also uh, it's it's and you have to listen to albums from the '60s and '70s and even the early '80s as side one and side two to truly understand them. Because when people were listening to them in the moment, that's how they were listening to them. So right. in, it's almost like uh, for those of us that grew up with cassettes, the same idea that sometimes you can remember one side of the cassette vividly as the side you liked better or worse or that got deeper as it went along. And it's the same basic concept of the albums, you know, side one and side two. So I always try to listen to these albums and, and explore what represented side one and what represented side two. Um, I know for The Doors, for example, when they talked about they wanted the album to be side one and then that one piece to be side two, I tried to size that up to think about what the album would have sounded like with that. So, yeah. Well, I think we can right. uh, put a wrap on this. I, one one last anecdote, because the Mothers of Invention did eventually break up in 1969. Frank Zappa broke up the band, which at the time had nine members. When they did this record, their debut record, they had five. Um, they were not doing well financially. Surprise, surprise. And Zappa cited the band, also cited in the reasons for breaking the band up, that he cited the band's lack of overall effort. While the band members said that Zappa was a perfectionist at the expense of human feelings. And he was seen as an autocrat highlighted by the fact that he stayed in a different hotel from the rest of the band when they toured. So there was some, while there, you know, even though they had some animosity during those years, um, he did play with some of those members. They did contribute to his uh, future records. Um, but the next year in 1970, he formed a new version of the Mothers um, with brand new band members. And that band was not the Mothers of Invention. They went back to the original name of the band, which was just the Mothers. Um, so... That's that. I would say I, I would recommend it if you want. You know, this is definitely something better that for me as a listen to than we're only in it for the money. More more straightforward, more structured. I think there's some tracks you can skip, but um, particularly if you give it number of listens, if you're patient, I think that there's uh, some rewards here that will pay off for you. Gotcha. And and if you remember, by the way, in the Matt and my episode, uh, 
the bonus episode with the monkeys. If you remember, Frank Zappa appeared on the monkeys twice and wanted Mickey Dolenz to be in his new Mothers of Invention as the drummer. If you remember, so yes, that's that right. I forgot about that. Mm-hmm. There was a clip of him interviewing, of like him switching roles with Mike Nesmith, interviewing yes, each other, which so I posted on Twitter a couple weeks ago. Not that you, you would go. know, Matt, because you never look at our Twitter. I so. I looked at it. I didn't. I didn't see yeah. that though. I saw the Frank Zappa <laughs> interview about avant garde though. So. Uh, yes. And then there's the one where he's got the cow and he's talking to Davy Jones yes. and he's, he's got he's like herding a cow around. But yes, De- Frank Zappa. Thank you for reminding me of that, John. He was uh, he did appreciate and and like the monkeys and uh, he was friends with them. So uh, he he was much more of a monkeys guy than a Beatles guy. As I said before, they're in everything for some. They Tom Wilson and uh, Carol King seem to be everyone to every everything in terms of the '60s. Uh, I think I'll probably take the lead right now, Matt, if you don't mind, and move us into the kinks, something else. Uh, In the opening montage, you heard the main single off the album, Waterloo Sunset, and uh, the uh, thing that you're going to hear right now uh, to lead into this is Situation Vacant. Okay, so you just heard Situation Vacant, and Something Else by the Kinks is the second Kinks album that we're covering. We covered them initially way back in the early days of the podcast in episode two, so you can check that out if you want the bio. But two things that I do want to bring up from past history that are relevant here. In that episode, I talked about how the Kinks sort of had five distinct periods of their career. This would fall in what I consider to be period number two, and that is the period that was considered to be when Ray Davies was making um, songs that were observational in style about English life in particular. They were softer rock albums, and they were sometimes called their golden era. Now, that followed the British Invasion three-chord garage rock that is the first version of them, and then the third version and the longest one, which is where they started releasing a series of concept albums and rock operas, which we're going to get to some of them later in the 60s, but also a little bit in the 70s. And those are famously critically acclaimed, if not great sellers. Uh, The other thing that defines this period, um, the second period of the Kinks, is the fact that, if you remember correctly, guys, they were banned from America for a long period of time by the American Federation of uh, Musicians, which still, as we've talked about before, is kind of a mystery as to what happens. There's a bunch of different stories, but this falls in the period where they were only really playing, uh, you know, outside of the United States market. So obviously that has a huge effect on their sales because they're not able to tour and support their albums in the way that all the rest of the major British bands were. Um, Another thing that's important context for this album is And it's interesting we cover the Kinks and the Who back-to-back because the Kinks are very similar to the Who in the fact that they are releasing a bunch of singles that are as well-known as most of the tracks on a lot of their albums. Um, Autumn Almanac, Dedicated Follower of Fashion, there's a whole bunch of different ones. In fact, on the Twitter account, at CombingThe, for those that want to follow along, uh, I actually put up five tracks from the Who and five tracks from the Kinks around the same time and said, Who... um, 
no pun intended, who uh, had a better set of singles at this time. And there were some folks that weighed in on that. So thanks to those that weighed in on it. But uh, but the Kinks are just plowing out singles to go along with albums. Um, yeah, those singles are time. so good, too. They really are. And it's it's shocking to me that the song Autumn Almanac is not on this album. They released it after this album kind of bombed uh, as a single to try to get airplay. And it fits thematically and sound wise pretty much perfectly into this album um kind of like i said pictures of lily would have fit perfectly on the who sell out last week so it's just very interesting in terms of what goes on to an album and what doesn't Um, it was such a different time too right there was a different focus than there is today you wouldn't really think about doing it at least not to the extent that they were doing it in the 60s which for the who and the kinks was totally let's mm -hmm. not put any singles on albums you know so it was a very different approach so a couple things about this album before we talk about it. Number one is it's pretty much um, it's pretty much talked about a lot that this album doesn't sound like almost anything else in 1967. Uh, it's very, very British. And I'm not talking British accent or anything. The concepts of the songs, what they're commenting on, come distinctly from a British viewpoint as opposed to a world viewpoint, especially sort of a combination of what I guess we would call like a suburban viewpoint nowadays and sometimes a pastoral viewpoint um and this is also when uh ray davies and actually dave davies does write two songs on this album death of a clown and love me till the sun shines which are actually two of the songs i like a whole lot on this album um so that's an interesting change of pace but uh because one of the reasons it doesn't sound like anything else from 1967 is because this is the first album that ray davies ever produces for the who or for the Kinks, excuse me, for the Kinks. Um, before that, Shell Tommy was doing their albums, and he's a pretty well-known producer of a variety of different groups. Um, but Ray Davies actually, in looking back at this, did not love the um, production work he did on this, and he felt that it was the songs that they had, probably um, his his words were a more mundane approach would have been better, But he, and he felt he kind of went a little bit too big for the material. Um, it's kind of funny to talk about Ray Davies saying that they went too big considering like where the next five or six albums go, these, you know, sprawling, uh, you know, concept albums and rock pieces. Um, I think also interestingly enough, uh, no return on this album is their attempt at doing Bossa Nova, which will be very fitting yeah. for the oh, last I, segment. I was going to say that. that. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So just so for some context, when we talked there, that was them attempting to do Bossa Nova, um, a genre that segment three will, I'm sure, go into quite a bit. Um, some of uh, Nicky Hopkins, who we've talked about quite a bit, he uh, is well known for playing with the Who and the Stones. He's the keyboardist on this album. There's a lot of keyboards. And Ray Davies' wife, Rasa, is singing the backing vocals on many of the songs. Um, that's quite a bit. I mean, this album did not do very well. Um, one of the reasons that it was considered to have not done well is it was competing against their singles albums, which were selling pretty well, especially overseas. Um, and also uh, the kinks were considered to be too old and established for the teeny bopper audience, but also not um, but too you know too cool and, and modern for an older audience. So they felt like they were kind of stuck in between two worlds. There's a pretty famous story where they were playing 20-minute sets for Peter Frampton's band called The Herd, and a bunch of teenage girls basically were having, like, <laughs> trying to basically yell them off the stage to get to Peter Frampton's band, and it led to them not touring for a very long time afterwards. Um, 
that was because they were because they were so upset by that or like they weren't upset they just said kind of what's the point of this and they became more of a studio rock band that's when they started doing the concept albums yeah so uh the last thing i'll say is that the guitar tone and sound of this album is also talked about it was created by what's called a tape delay echo effect and uh ray davies and and dave davies kind of laughed that It was considered to be new and revolutionary, but it was really just used quite a bit in the 50s for guitar tone, especially for pop songs. But no one had used it in so long because it was considered, you know, not cool anymore that by the time they used it again in 1967 in another context, um, they said that people thought it was new again, which was funny. And they thought it was kind of instructive to like what people listened to because, you know, in the mid 50s, people were using this all the time and yet people weren't able to... um, to, to recall it so that's a little bit of it um matt let's start with you what'd you think of this album so i like this record um i liked it better than the last kinks record that we um heard face to face for reference yep. face to face and that was our second episode i think um yes so i think that this was more consistent and there were two songs on this that from the get-go i loved right away i my favorite on this on this record include death of a clown Mm-hmm. Um, yes, which written is just, by Dave Davies. Yep. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And um, it's a very, I don't know the way to describe it. It's just like the, the it's like that they have a very cool acoustic guitar part that's going on and it's just got a very infectious and catchy, you know, chorus and, and, and verses too. It's just a great, it's just a very cool song. Plus I hate clowns. So anytime a clown dies, I'm all for it. <laughs> oh man. Um, Matt who fact. likes clowns? That's just clowns. <laughs> Strong take. Doing? Yeah. Strong take. Die, clowns. Die. Whoa. You're going to die, clown. Um, <laughs> the other song that I really, really liked, and probably my favorite on this record, is Harry Rag. Which oh, yeah. Is, that's... It's, it's like, a, I feel like you're listening to that song, and you're like in a bar, like back in the like in the 1800s with a bunch of sailors, and they're just like stomping their feet. And like, it's just a very, it's a very cool sounding song to me. And it's just got a very, like, again, very catchy chorus. It's got a cool bass line, got a good bass line going on in there. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, it's about smoking a cigarette, right, John? It is. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Just about give me a cigarette, man. My life might suck, but as long as I got a cigarette called. Well, Harry they Rag. write about ordinary parochial issues to the point where the Kinks were actually criticized for writing a variation of the same song mm. consistently. And so Ray Davies said, well, I'll show you fucking something. And then released <laughs> a bunch of concept albums in a row, basically because of that criticism. So. Well, and again, I'm listening more for the music, but I think that I, I, I like the first half of this record better than the second overall. Um, it, it took me... I, How again, can you say that about an album that has Waterloo Sunset on the back end of yeah, the that's album? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that um, I like that song, and I've also heard people like you know hail that as being one of their best songs. I think Rhett Miller from the old 97 says he, he, thoughts, he thinks it's the best song that's ever that was ever written, period, not wow. just the best Kinks song. So he's... And I think he covered it as well. Um I, I like it. I'm not. Blo- I don't see the genius of it. I'm not. I'm not like. Oh my god, that song's amazing. I do like it. Um, but I, to me, it's a little bit overhyped. Um, but you know. But I think that for as as a whole, the album is very good. I don't think there's really anything that's weak on here that I'm going. I don't like this at all. There's certainly some tracks I like better than others. Uh, but I think it was a more consistent effort um, than 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 face to face, and. Yeah, I also liked. Oh, the other Dave Davies song was really "Love Me Till the Sun Shines." I think that that was another that was more of a standout for me too. I liked that, but um, yeah, it's good. I like it. This album okay. is great. There's I, I, yeah. there are so many catchy songs on this album. Mm-hmm. Like how ca- 
I was going to ask, like, what is your favorite song on this album? Because there's like four favorite songs on this album for me. I agree with you, Josh, but just it, to weigh it, in. Yep. The song craft is so good. It's mm-hmm. it's 36 minutes. It breezes by. Every, like, almost everything has a catchy hook or, like, a really good, you know, like, Death of a Clown, like you said, Matt. That's a great song. David Watts. Who is David Watts? I don't care because I'm just singing the song. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I love I love uh, Tin Soldier Man. I love Afternoon mm-hmm. Tea. I love Waterloo Sunset. Um, I mean, there's, it's it's a testament to their writing and how I guess maybe underappreciated or at the time, um, I don't know how appreciated they are now, but, um, that they just make, they just like craft solid, awesome, like rock songs Mm -hmm. and pop songs. So I think David Watts was a dude that he went to high school with or something like that, or maybe represented somebody that he went to high school with. He was a representative. He was sort of, yeah, he was a sketch. Yep. For sure. Uh, I think that, Probably the worst take on this entire podcast in the 15 episode run is Matt saying, you know, Waterloo Sunset's a pretty good song, but I just don't really see what the, Waterloo Sunset's almost a perfect pop song. I'd like to say the Kinks were as good a a singles band as any band in the 60s. And I'd argue one of the best singles bands ever. And Waterloo Sunset might be their best single of all of their singles so i think in terms of underplaying a song i it's i would say that you know whether you feel it or not like the the crafting of waterloo sunset is it's almost a perfect pop song we haven't even mentioned situation vacant yet which i love yes, in terms of the structure mm-hmm. the, the structure of it as josh said it's just one good song after another another thing about this album is every time you listen to it it gets better and you start to see a little bit more of the complexity music wise in it i listened to it three times and each time i listened to it i picked up on other stuff the kinks master that idea of crafting songs that can sound simple the first time you listen and then you go back and you hear them and they're way more complex than you realize they were the the tone of the guitars on this album i don't know why ray davies didn't love his production because i actually thought it was really well produced um but the sound of the album and the layering was excellent and i know matt you're not a big lyrics guy but the lyrics are alternatingly funny and very evocative you can get a picture in your head as you said like harry rag you you got a picture right you told it right there um and i almost look at the way ray davies writes songs and and he would describe it this way i think too he does sketches of things but they aren't necessarily about concrete things it's about ideas like waterloo sunset is sort of him he said different things over time, but it's basically about him viewing these two um, act, this actor and actress who are dating in British pop culture and imagining them like in a romance scene or like them on a date or something like that. And he kind of writes from that perspective, slightly detached observer. Um, and I just, I really love the way his songs come together and build to the choruses. Um, I do like it better than Face to Face. Uh, face to Face, as Kinks albums go, is kind of in the middle for me, but I, I think this is a definitive step up um, in terms of the quality of, of the songs and easy recommend for me. Yeah, and I think I agree with you. I think I saw more into it the more I listened to it. And I think I think that for the, me, the, like the first side overall was something that I, that I gravitated in, 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 towards more and it hit me more initially. And I appreciated the second half the more I listened to it. Um, but uh, I, I would agree with that. There is a lot going on here. And um, I, I, I like it a lot. You know, I, I don't know what to say about Waterloo Sunset. It's, it's, a, it's a great song. It's not like I'm going, holy crap, it's the most amazing thing I've ever heard. I'm just not there. 
Yeah. I think what John said struck something for me about it being sim- seeming simple at first and being more complex mm. when you listen to it. Cause I, I, I agree with that. I think the first time you listen to it, you say, okay, yeah, I see what they're doing. It's not that, you know, I've heard it before or something, but then when you start listening to it more, it reveals itself. Well, we just talked about Van Halen, right? And that's a trademark of Eddie Van Halen. I think you hear a song like Panama, and it's like, boy, this is, you don't need much of a brain to figure out what this is about, but then you isolate the stuff Eddie Van Halen's doing on the guitar solos and stuff like that and the complexity of it, and you're like, boy, this is a pop song, and it has this layer of artistic complexity to it. And the kinks, I, I feel, have always walked that line as a band. And I think that's why they're always considered to be sort of an underappreciated band. And once again, I can't stress enough that them not having a foothold in America when there's a lot of nostalgia for other bands, I think has always robbed the kinks a little bit of their cred, street cred in terms of mainstream press. Um, They've always been celebrated by critics and certainly musicians uh, love the kinks, but I think, you know, mainstream appeal, you got to wonder if they had those five years back. It's it. I just, I don't see how they wouldn't have had a bunch of hits. Um, yeah, they just seemed like they had like some things that were just going against them, right? They just had a string of bad luck, you know, in terms of timing or be, getting banned. You know, um, you know, I don't know if other art, artists were like overshadowing them because they, you know, took advantage of being able to do those things that they weren't. But um, no, they're good, and it, it's certainly uh, there's certainly a band that. I, you know, I'm glad that we're covering because I, it's certainly I've, I've known about them for, for many years, but it's never been something again where I've, you know, really delved into their stuff um, or, you know, really got to the point where it's like I felt like I knew their stuff because I certainly I think the only song I knew going into this was Waterloo Sunset. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, like, you know, probably I know their singles a lot, a lot more than, than what we're hearing in these records, um, you know, which which makes sense. But um, John, was this so you're saying that he, that Davies was maybe not satisfied with the production and maybe some of the critics, um, you know, kind of being critical of what he was writing about to, to go into more of a uh, concept album, I guess, cause I guess the next is the, the green uh, village green preservation society. Mm-hmm. So was he, was he not happy with this record? Were critics not happy? Like what was the overall it didn't, take? It didn't, it didn't sell well. And um, like I said, after this, they went on a tour that they were reluctant to pursue to begin with. And then they were really disillusioned. Um, and at the time, the Kinks were considered to be a band that had had, had its time, right? They weren't cool anymore. They kind of, there was a thought that they'd lost their mojo to some degree. And then, you know, they, they enter this period afterwards where they do Village Preservation Society. And they're critically acclaimed, but they're still not selling well. And then they do the concept album uh, with Lola, right? It, Lola in 1970. Mm-hmm. That song hits uh, as an almost like a novelty act in America, but then it sort of reinvigorates interest in the kinks and they start selling a little bit better. And keep in mind that at this point, they're no longer enforcing that band so they can play in the United States. And so then throughout the 70s, they become late six, you know, or really late sixties and, and most of the seventies, they become that band that's known for these sprawling concept albums. Um, but yeah, that was directly the result of a, a conscious change of direction uh, by Ray Davies, the songwriter, and in terms of how he was putting music together. 
But Dave, so Davey's only critic, critic, criticism of this album for him was just his production. He still stood by the songs pretty much, you think, or what they were trying to do? I think so. Yeah, I think, yeah. I mean, yeah, he's always observational and he's always sketch of life in all of his writing throughout his all of the different versions of the kinks. So that doesn't really change. I think it's just more, um, he becomes a little bit less parochial to like a certain type of character sketch and moves into a more general um, set of character sketches. I, I, mm-hmm. That's the best way I can describe it. It becomes less more in a certain type of Englishman and more in universal themes. You know, like Lola's about right. a transvestite, right? You know, so it's yeah. like, you know, he goes in a different direction, gets a little bit more edgy. That You know, the kinks, unlike the Who, who are more overt in the sexual overtones of it, uh, the kinks music has a lot of, like, ambiguity in terms of sexuality, in it, it and we'll we'll visit them at other times but i would kind of urge you guys especially as we start listening to the um the concept albums that's kind of a theme that that comes up quite a bit this sort of ambiguity in the lyrics um to go along with a mundane traditional way of viewing the world as well often juxtaposed against each other so um and uh yeah and and one thing you'll be interested in matt is uh you love the pretty things and actually, mm-hmm. a member of the Pretty Things, Gordon Edwards, actually becomes a bassist for the Kinks later on. So I was just we'll going to ask because I, th- I think mm-hmm. I remember you saying in the first episode we covered them that they that they changed over like Ray Davies and Dave, Dave Davies stayed the, stayed the same core, but then they they transferred uh, their you bass and drummer a lot. So mm-hmm. were these the same guys as the previous record? Is this where 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 is there? Uh, this was a couple guys history? quit after this album because they felt kind of the critical success was just not going to come. So a so, couple members of the band, then they re, they reconfigured the band for the next era. And that's kind of why I describe it as era three. That's not a formal thing. It's not critics saying, this is era three of the king. This is in my head. Yeah. I, I look at it. And the other thing, too, is I don't mean to keep going back to Van Halen, but a big piece of Van Halen is they covered the kinks twice and did mm-hmm. a real good job on them with you, you Really Got Me and Where Have All the Good Times yeah, Gone. You Really Got Me is on the Van Halen one and... Uh, where have all the good times gone is the the uh, first track on Diver Down, and they're both awesome covers that are different than the original. So that's the um, other thing. Van Halen is a great cover band. They yeah, are so, so for good. Sure. Um, they sure were. Yeah. Now, now let me ask you this before before we wrap this up. Like, I think that that's an interesting concept because when you think about bands who have rotating members, you know, like a band like Oasis for all those years, you know, they they seem to like flux. You know, it's just the two brothers, and then you have all these other people, and they were clearly difficult personalities to work with and Mm -hmm. i gotta think that if that's happening in a band maybe they're not happy with the success but it's got to lend some credibility to the fact that maybe these two brothers are really hard to work with i would assume that that would be part of it too if you keep rotating band members it's got to speak to like those people being hard to work with doesn't it i don't i don't know if they were more hard to work john for these guys i don't know if they were considered more hard to work with than other temperamental musicians but i you know i i think a lot of musicians are not easy people to work with especially if you consider the band to be you to be the um the the titular head of the band right you know it's and you have that ownership there's always sort of this is my band and if you're seeing my mission you can stay and if not you know get lost basically right so right. yep mm-hmm. um but i i mean i don't read about them being you uniquely difficult to get along with um i mean there you can go back to our earlier episode but there's a lot of funny stories about the kinks during this time and recordings of different stuff and concept albums and you know sort of their general crankiness at different times but 
I didn't get the feeling that people left because they had falling outs with the Davies brothers. I think a lot of the people leaving during this time were like, I don't think we're ever going to break it like mm-hmm. the other British bands because we can't play in America, right? So I'll go back mm-hmm. to doing this other gig. Um, later on, I think they probably did become a little bit harder to work with in the 70s. You do hear a little bit more of that. And um, I know they're territorial of their songwriting and protecting it, but... Uh, but I don't know. I mean, I can look into it, Matt, but I, it doesn't come up in terms of I was just of curious, you know, I was just, you know, because it very well could be that. Like, you know, it makes sense. We're not making any money. We could be doing better things. But um, it just, it strikes me whenever I see that with a band, I'm like, oh, man, it was like these two guys and then a bunch of other people. It's like, eh, I, 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 it just, it just would, would stand to reason that that might be part of it. But um, I could be could mistaken be. here. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. All right. I think it's probably time to slide on over to Getz and Gilberto. So Josh, the floor is yours. All right, thank you for that. The opening track that you heard in the montage was Girl from Ipanema, one of the most famous songs in the world probably. <laughs> and uh, the track you're gonna hear now is Desafinato. Se você disser que eu desafino amor Saiba que isto em mim provoca imensa dor Só privilegiados têm ouvido igual ao seu Eu possuo apenas o que Deus me deu So, I've got a lot to cover today. A little bit of a Brazilian jazz lesson for you. Getz and Gilberto released 1964 it's Stan Getz and Jao Gilberto it's currently 51 on the best ever albums chart for the 60s Getz and Gilberto is considered one of the best-selling jazz albums of all time and the album that popularized bossa nova around the world but Josh what is bossa nova I'm glad you asked listeners because I'm going to tell you nice (laughs) Portuguese bossa nova is Portuguese for new trend or new wave It is a union of samba and jazz that originated in Rio de Janeiro. Samba itself is considered both a musical genre and type of dance. Samba is considered one of the cornerstones of Brazilian national identity. It can also be considered a fusion of jazz and indigenous Brazilian music. Bossa Nova is in 2-4 time, so two quarter notes per beats per measure. And it is a syncopated rhythm and relaxed tempo. It's also characterized by non-operatic style reminiscent of Brazilian folk tunes. So in contrast to jazz before then in Brazil, which was very like operatic and vocal. This is much more laid back. Um, It's also characterized by romantic and wistful lyrics that talk about nature, love, and longing in women. And even if you don't understand Portuguese, I think you can get that from this album. It incorporates jazz chords and harmonies. And the key instruments in Bossa Nova are the classical acoustic guitar, the bass, the cabasa, which is the wood and metal shaker that plays an unending pulse, which I'm sure you guys heard throughout the whole album. For sure. Yep. And uh, also the claves, which are wooden sticks that play a clicking pattern that calls back to the traditional um, Brazilian music. And, and then the lead instruments like the saxophone that Stan Getz plays. The prevailing vocal style in Brazilian samba was loud and operatic, so bossa nova was in reaction to that. That's something to keep in mind. So 
whereas we think of bossa nova and when you hear this album if you're not familiar with the history of jazz we think of it as elevator music this bossa nova was created in reaction to a style of jazz that was much more loud and outgoing and and higher intensity and this is obviously different than that the other thing is to keep in mind is, is that bossa nova is considered apolitical uh, opposite what matt talked about in uh, with Ushmatantes and the Tropicalia movement, which was in episode nine, if you want to hear more about that. Well worth a, a deep dive back into the stacks Definitely. for that one. You'll, you'll hear the difference right away yeah. um, and get some more history about Brazil as well. So um, Stan Getz was American, I should add, and João Gilberto was Brazilian. And I'm going to go into both of them as well. And another key figure in this is Antonio Jobim, also known as Tom. That was his nickname. Um, Gilberto and Jobim are considered the fathers of Bossa Nova. Um, And between 1959 and 1961, Jobim worked on Gilberto's first three albums in Brazil. So a little bit about João Gilberto, since he is very important. He was born in 1931. He died last year in 2019. He's known in Brazil as Omito, which is the legend. Now, there was not a lot of... I could not get a lot of good biographical information on the internet about him. In fact, I tried to even just see if there was biographies and stuff out there um, about him, and, and there's nothing. So maybe it's the fact that he's Brazilian, and maybe there's a lot of you know Portuguese uh, work on him that hasn't been translated, but I couldn't find a lot, um, and I found wikipedia's entries lacking as well Um, he started his musical career at age 18 as a singer Um, he then joined a band um, in in brazil he got his first guitar at age 14 and then between 51 and 59 he released singles as a singer and guitarist in 1959 gilberto released chega de saudade which is an album that is not only considered the first bossa nova album but also the title track which is considered the first bossa nova song so that's kind of where bossa nova i mean he literally invented it and that's where it comes from um so now a little bit about stan getz stan getz was uh born in 1927 and died in 1991 he was a an american jazz saxophonist born and raised in philadelphia and his nickname was the sound He had been playing in bands and was a musician since the age of 16. He gained prominence playing for band leader Woody Herman, and his band was known as uh, the Second Herd. Now, he had various iterations of his band, so the first one was called the Herd, and this one was called the Second Herd. The saxophonists in the group were known as the Four Brothers, and then he had so much success in this band that he went on to launch a solo career. In the mid to late 50s, he played a cool jazz with various quintets and sextets in Europe, and then he returned to America in 1961. This is where Stan Getz was introduced to Bossa Nova, and that's how he gets kind of, this is why he gets uh, associated with, with Gilberto. So uh, another musician, Charlie Bird, who was a guitarist, was responsible for bringing Bossa Nova records back to the U.S. to begin with. Now, he went on a U.S.-sponsored state tour of Brazil to play jazz with a bunch of other musicians and to play with Brazilian um, jazz players. And 
when he came back, Getz saw him play in 61 at the Showboat Lounge here in D.C. and requested that they record an album together. So Getz really liked the sound of, of Bossa Nova from hearing Charlie Bird play it. So that album became known as Jazz, um, Jazz Samba and came out in April 1962 by Getz and Charlie Bird. And that was the first Bossa Nova album recorded by American jazz musicians. And that was recorded here in D.C. at All Souls Unitarian Church, February 13, 1962. And that church is still still here. I looked it up. Uh, jazz Samba is considered the album that started the Bossa Nova craze in America. Gets won a Grammy for the best jazz performance in 1963 for Odessa Finado off of that album. And he continued to record Bossa Nova albums leading up to Getz and Bill. Gilberto. Now the third key component in this uh, trio is Antonio Tom Jobin. He was born in 27, died in 1994. His he, friends, I believe, call him Tom. Josh. Yes, 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 definitely. That's what he was known as. He was the composer and the songwriter and the pianist on Getz and Gilberto, and he was closely associated, as I said before, with Gilberto. Um, they worked previously together, and he is also known as the father of Bossa Nova. He became prominent in Brazil for writing the music for a famous play called Orfeo de Conceição, which is Orpheus of the Conception. In 1956, it then became a film in 1959 titled Black Orpheus. Uh, it's basically the story of Orpheus set during Carnival in Brazil. It's a pretty good movie. And then Joe Ben wrote a score, a new score for that film as well. Um, in 1959, João Gilberto recorded his first album, as I said before, and with two of the most famous songs written by Tom Joben, Tessa Finado and Chega de Saudade. Um, and Joe Ben also produced that album. So you have two fathers of Bossa Nova basically working together to create the first Bossa Nova albums in Brazil. Okay, this this all leads us up to, I'm getting to the actual album, sorry for going long, but I wanted to make sure everyone, all the pieces were set in place. On November 21st, 1962, the first North American concert of Bossa Nova, the New Brazilian Jazz, was presented at Carnegie Hall by Gilberto, Joe Bim, and other Brazilian musicians. After this, the record producer Creed Taylor wanted Joe Bim and Gilberto to meet Stan Getz for his, quote, historical documentation of the genre style. So that's how all of these guys came together to make Getz and Gilberto. So now we have reached the point where this album was produced. It was recorded March 18th and 19th, 1963, and released March of 1964. It was recorded at A&R Studios in New York City and released by Verve Records. The artwork for the album was done by Olga Albizu, who was an abstract expressionist painter from Puerto Rico. And she did some other um, uh, Bossa Nova uh, albums as well. The Girl from Ipanema won Grammy for Record of the Year in 1965, which is the sing uh, first song off this album. Getson Gilberto won, won received Grammy Awards for Best Jazz Instrumental Album. Um, individual or group and best engineered recording non-classical it also became the first non-american album to win 
for album of the year 1965 and it was the first jazz album to ever win album of the year um another important person that i don't want to leave out is estrude gilberto which is um Zhao's wife she sings the english vocals on this um on the two tracks on this album on girl from ipanema she's ostensibly the girl from ipanema <laughs> by singing that song and um also on the um the other song about uh i'm drawing a blank on the name of the album but uh, or the song but i'll i'll find it um she had never sung professionally before this album and and so this is kind of her foray into bossa nova and and she's still alive too i should add um oh corcovado is the other song that she sings on this um jobin co-wrote nearly all the songs on this album except tracks two and three and despite their collaboration getz and gilberto did not meld stylistically um getz was much more uh what i read is like a harder player and gilberto was more laid back and that, they kind of clashed that way and they often disagreed as to which take was the best um to use and the producer creed taylor shelved this album for a year thinking that it was going to be a commercial failure and obviously that's not the case because it sold more than two million copies in 1964 alone and i will add uh my final thing before i let you guys speak since i'm sure you're tired of hearing me speak is that uh the collaboration between getz and gilberto ended because uh estrue gilberto had a love affair with stan getz at one point oh, oh yeah. i was that i did not see that coming be a thing in the 60s <laughs> that was a kaiser yeah. soze moment josh i didn't see that coming holy cow so, yep so that's all of the background um i wanted people to know what bossa nova was and and why this album is what it is so and i wanted to educate you guys but what did you all think of this album John, i, I love this i love this album i mean it's such a cool atmospheric piece um, it's funny because it starts with such a, a well-known song that you're like, okay, instant, instantaneously recognizable. Mm -hmm. um, I am familiar with the samba sound and to some degree the idea of what Bossa Nova sounded like, so I wasn't totally ignorant coming into it. However, um, it just as the album goes on, it kind of washes over you. It's such – the musicianship is excellent. I love the fusion of the saxophone playing by Getz. I, I love the singing – uh, by Astrid Gilberto in the two things, but it's not on every track, so it really stands out when it shows up. Um, and the lyrics are are perfect. Uh, to use an over overused word, right? They're very tasteful over top of the musicianship playing, and then the the background of the the sticks. What were the sticks called, Josh? I was I, I wrote down the sticks uh, as the sound. <laughs> That's what it was. But it was you the mentioned sticks. you mentioned you mentioned them, and I said I should really be more. Uh, more knowledgeable on it, but the the sticks the, are called claves. Claves, the claves. You know, when they come in, they work perfectly because they don't overwhelm the track. And I think that's what was. We've listened to other stuff where I think we've we've complained that some of these instruments that are niche instruments can overtake the track, right, and make it. You know, we saw the strings with with uh, Chelsea Girls last week. Mm -hmm. We were talking about the kazoo, you know, use of synthesizers, different stuff. But here, all of these different parts blend perfectly into the general mood. And, and like I said before, it kind of washes over you. And I know that the, the stereotype of bossa nova is that it's 
elevator music, right? And that's, I think that's like super unfair because that comes from the shitty movie Blues Brothers. If you've never seen it, you don't need to because it's a terrible movie. But that's, no, I think, where take. that idea comes. Oh, that's a real hot take. Cause, <laughs> but I think that's very much where the idea that this is like elevator music comes from. But to me, it's very much you put it on and it, it changes your mood and it's so very different than anything else we've listened to. And Josh, one of the most interesting things that you mentioned was that this was sort of in reaction to what Ush Mutantes was going against the idea of like a, a multicultural world, right? This, this sort of represents a, an authentic Brazilian sound, right? Mm-hmm. And it was very welcome for me because it sounds outside of the canon of American music. And I like the fact that we were sort of taken out of that and given exposure to a different sound altogether. And, and you know, Ush Mutantes sounded different, but it was still rooted in things that, you know, we, we've been covering, right? This is rooted to some degree in cool jazz, which we've talked, talked a little bit about, but it's its own thing entirely, the mm-hmm. instrumentation, the arrangement. Um, but it also has saxophone. So, it, you know, we can compare it to things like Coltrane and Eric Dolphy and Pharaoh Sanders and stuff like that. So it was, a, it was an easy thumbs up for me. I really enjoyed this album. Both times I listened to it, I listened to it at different times of the day. And in both cases, it very much put me in a, in a really nice mindset, which is what jazz is for me when it hits correctly. It puts me in a, in a mindset and it affects my emotional side, not my cognitive side. Yep. Yep, that's all I got. Uh, yeah, this album is smooth, right? This is just oh, yeah. like a really easy listen. Um, it was I listened to it several times, and it, it was uh, it was one of those things where like I didn't I didn't feel like I needed to listen to this on the headphones because this was just like this was good music to play in the morning, making breakfast, kind of like you know at night at dinner time. Man, I wish. If I was a smooth like bachelor kind of dude, like or ever in my life, like this this song, you put this on, uh, you know, after a date, bring all the ladies are coming over, man. This is this is the Mac album to be putting on. It's very, um, it's very relaxing. It's 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 easy to listen to. It's it's just a nice sound, right? And it's right. all the instrumentation. It all blends well together. I even though I couldn't really decipher too much from one song to the next it's got a they're all very similar sounding um it's it to me it's kind of just one long track essentially um some variations but it's a, it, the sound is what really is what's going here as far as opposed to kind of specific intricacies within each song um but uh you know i yeah this was i i really enjoyed it um it's not something that i would usually listen to uh, but it is, it, it, and I would say that it is kind of elevator music because it does fit that cat. Because essentially, at the core, elevator music or whatever term you want to use, the, is is the type of stuff that you can put on in the background. It's not going to be offensive. It's not going to be. Um, it's just going to be there, right? But it also speaks to the the fact that I think that just because it, it, it has those characteristics doesn't mean that it's all the same, right? That it's that it's going to fit the same kind of. You're going to get the same feel from this. Um, as other quote unquote elevator music, because this is really good. You know, yeah. like you can tell that these guys are, are good musicians. You could tell that uh, the structure of the songs are, are it, it's interesting. It's, 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 um, it's a, it's a nice listen, but it's not like it's, it's not boring. It's not, even though it is kind of, I, I don't want to say it's repetitive, but even though it's very, it's, it's very similar, it doesn't bother me. Like I could listen to this over and over again. Um, 
as one kind of sound and still be fine with it and not not get tired of it you know what i mean um so i i liked it a lot um and it's yeah it's a very easy listen to, you know my it's, i think it might have been my, my one of my wife's favorite because she likes she loves music like this um and i t- typically don't play this at breakfast but uh, i think i'll start doing more of that now because uh, I, I really liked it nice. well you also you find a lot of tropes that people describe and i i think sometimes it you know, you'll hear a lot like it's romantic or breezy, right? Like every time I, I went to do a description, I felt like, and, and I think some of that comes from the fact that it's people outside of the culture trying to describe a different culture that they don't totally understand, right? Um, and I, I would also like to add two more things. We haven't even talked about the piano, which I think is Joe Beam, right? Yes. He um, playing the piano, the piano. And it's, it's, once again, it's so subtle, but always present in this album. And Boy, is that a difficult skill to, to go in the background. It's similar to like Coltrane's piano play, but you could always see it directly juxtaposed against the sax. Here it like is just another piece that, once again, I've talked before about how I isolate pieces of jazz music. And one of the times I listened, I really focused on the piano work. Um, and so that was there. And Matt, would you say that uh, you talked about if, if you were a solo bachelor, would this be <laughs> making love music or would this be screwing music, Matt? Because I yeah, think this, it's making love music, right? Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's yeah. not like let's get down and dirty, jo- James Brown, uh, Sly and the Family Stone music. It's a little different. So you or even different Eric Dolphy. I, I think you get a little freaky with Eric Dolphy, right? You might not, but those jazz aficionados <laughs> may. Up and turning it off. I would just be like, why the hell? I'd, I'd probably leave. Like, this lady is not for me. I think if you're more experimental. Is, I'm going to call yes, John and tell him to get over here because this is his type of girl. And get experimental? So John, wait. Are you saying that you don't see you wanna... me, like with, with, with the freaky ladies that like Eric Dolphy? This, I, I, yeah. This did not I, go in the direction I expected to, it to go. But Josh, what's your take right <laughs> wait, here? After I, I just, your bio? Yes. <laughs> well, I agree. I, I really like this album. Um, one of the best quotes I heard was that this this is an album that sways what, rather than swings. And you mm-hmm. totally get that, right? It captures... What I love about it is that it captures what I imagine Brazil might be like or like the best parts of Brazil. And, and also, I as, as, associate this type of jazz with like the beach so it always puts me in a good mood also is, that way is that a jazz thing for you because last week you thought sketches of spain would remind you what you imagine spain would be like so maybe you just need a variety yeah. of jazz pieces to get a tour of the world so yeah, i think maybe. josh is just upset that winter's coming and he wants to go yeah. back to the beach he's trying yeah. to force it yeah maybe it's just too too on the nose but um i also appreciate how peaceful and understated this album is um Mm. which i think i read is you know its subtlety is kind of was one of the innovative things about this type of music as well um versus the more uh you know outspoken jazz that was playing before and i just love the i mean i love we got to give credit to estru gilberto's uh vocals on this too she sings really well um she she embodies those songs that she sings um, the English um, albums for. And they are arguably what made this album a hit just as much as everything else on this album Um, that made it more accessible to American audiences, Mm -hmm. I think. Um, And I just love the kind of nature that it, that nature, even though I don't know the lyrics, but I imagine that there's, uh, talking about nature and love and and kind of 
you know, int intimate, like just smooth things like Matt said. And yeah, it's great. Um, it's, it's an essential jazz album, I would say. I think, yeah, Girl from Ip Ipanema, like when you look at the lyrics, it's just basically about a girl and just admiring like her her beauty but not in like a lecherous way right like right. In, in in the context of the scenery everything about the beautiful girl beautiful scenery you know she the whole idea of the of her you know she's light she's free she has an aura right and it's mm -hmm. i think it's i think when i read the translation it's supposed to complement how the the bossa nova sounds like the lyrics so yeah, yeah. and goberto Gilberto is such a good singer too on this. Um, he's really, I think, underrated um, singing wise on this. Josh, do you know where Ipanema is? Well, it's in Rio, right? It's in... it's uh, it's it says well it's uh, it's it is a beach essentially. It's in so Peru, it's isn't it? Uh, no, it's in Rio. Um, it's in yeah, Rio. It's a, okay, it's sorry, a neighborhood. A fashionable, sea, a fashionable seaside neighborhood. So it, yeah. It, it's yeah, it's right on. So there's your beach, Josh. It I is. know. Send send me there. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> John, were you saying that you? So were you? I couldn't quite catch it. If you were saying that you you do or don't. I feel I was saying it was a making love album. album, not a screwing album. Matt is what I was saying. Because I knew oh, you were going to gotcha. go back to that. Okay, yes. gotcha. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How did I know you were going to go back there? I got, I got in before you even finished. So, <laughs> yes. We know each, you know me too well. I do. Yep. But there you go. That's my and what I mean by that to not be overly crude is basically the the sound of it is designed. It's romantic and is um, context. You know, um, you know when you want to set the tone, but in a very in a very sort of delicate way that can lead wherever you want and just put you in a good feeling as mm -hmm. opposed to, you know, <laughs> you know, strongly suggesting a sexual <laughs> encounter. You know, this could be simply like a romantic, you know, uh, evening eating yeah. dinner. And then, you know, and, and the, not that you couldn't do that to the other things, but you know, when you have James Brown on the background, your list is all called sex machine. It's kind of, you're putting that on. There's a, there's a general vibe to that that you're trying to put off. Whereas this could lead to wherever you'd like it to go. And that's, that's subtlety. Josh, that you talked about. It can kind of lead you. It's as subtle that you could put it on in an elevator, but you can also listen to it and get the complex. Another thing we talked about the kinks, but I'd say here, there's complexity in the subtlety. And I know that sounds oxymoronic, but it's definitely true here as well. I think it's interesting too, Josh, that you were saying how they had different styles. And it, it would seem to me that Gilberto style won out here. You know, if, if Getz, you said that Getz wanted to play maybe a little bit you know, faster or, or, or harder. Like, well, I forget exactly what you said to describe it, but it sounded like Gilberto, cause this is not, if he was trying to like up the tempo or up the, 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 the energy, he, he failed. Like he lost that argument. It seems. Well, wasn't this like gets trying to fit into boleros too, Josh, like the, the type of song that the, the boleros, aren't they the, um, like almost ballads, like Brazilian ballads kind of. And this was sort of gets, doing his take of it as an American. I, that, that's at least my understanding. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I, I just read that they clashed because I guess they kind of recorded in different ways or, um, they were, I have to find the quote that Gilberto said something about gets one time during recording, um, that I can't remember. I can't do it justice, but, um, I mean, everybody on here except Getz was Brazilian, right? The other the guys who play the bass, uh, Sebastião Neto, 
um, and Milton Banana, who played the drums. They're they're Brazilians as well. So I think, like you said, Matt, I think Gilberto wins out in terms of the sound. Um, one of the songs actually gets plays so softly on, you can apparently hear him like moving the the uh, the keys on the saxophone or something like that. Um, yeah, I, I I know what you mean. Like the the buttons, are they called yeah, keys? Buttons, whatever they are, something the, like that. The saxophone uh-huh. things. But yeah, John, I don't know about the bolero. Um, I'd have to look into that. And did they did they uh, totally like? Uh, what, did they have B for the rest of their lives? Was was is that a fair kind of really the nail in the coffin? Were they able to reunite ever? Um, I think they did reunite. I read that somewhere. Um, Getz had a lot of personal issues. Um, I saw a lot of drug use, pretty much every drug. Uh, a lot of, uh, I think he was abusive in a lot of abusive relationships mm. with women. Um, and so, um, but yeah, I think they did reunite like 10 years later or something on another album. So I don't know. I guess no hard feelings. And they or- did another one ahead of this, didn't they? Like another collaboration? Uh, this is no. This is their first collaboration. I I think they did something after this. Okay, there's um, a there's an album with samba in it um, that I'm trying to remember that I listened to as deeper context for this. Um, while you're talking, I'll I'll look it up. Okay. Well, I, I thought it was interesting too because I was thinking when you were when you were talking about when it was recorded and then when it was released a year later, you know, and how different that was from the Mothers of Invention, which was essentially what two months, mm-hmm. you know, that they recorded and then released it, but um. So it's just it's it's it was not like that they were working on the production. It was just I want to sit on this because I don't think it's gonna sell it all. Yeah. But then he must have done it. Like did, did did somebody else force it? Like why do you? It's it. I I find that process interesting. It's like okay now it's ready. Like it needed a year to to get. Did he need convincing from somebody? Yeah. Um, maybe maybe Bossa Nova just took off more or something. Uh, I mean mm, they recorded right. it in two days. So. Yeah. <laughs> They're, yeah, they're, they're good musicians. Yeah, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of layering or production or anything. So it didn't. Yeah, it seems weird that it would take a while to do that. Yep. But um, also produced by another cool name, Creed Taylor. I yeah, think, I think that's Creed's a great name. We should yep. bring that back. Two first names, Creed and Taylor. Mm-hmm. And I was incorrect. Stan Getz did a Bossa Nova album before this but it was not with gilberto it was with a guy named charlie bird and it's called jazz samba shortly before this yeah so that's what i was going for yeah that album came out in 62 yeah but this is gets and gilberto's first collaboration there's gets and gilberto number two which is a live album mm-hmm. and then the best of two worlds yeah it's a reunion with with gilberto in 76 okay so they did a, it looks like they did another album yeah definitely recommend oh, for me though they're smiling on the album cover, so <laughs> they look like they're good. How good. So that's nice. Positive note we can end on. Yep. So check it out. This album is great. And play it at your next dinner party, and then you can give everyone background. Or just if you're in a bad mood or with the tenor of COVID and everything else in the world, this is just a nice little escape to slip into, and it doesn't overstay its welcome, which is a combing the stacks core phrase, which yeah, we all love. That's yeah. one of our core core tenants on this show i think yes and come it's, up with it's the combing the stacks bible it's a it's <laughs> an interquote board yeah it's yeah. an interesting bookend to the mothers of invention album which most certainly overstays its welcome so um so yeah uh i think that probably is a great place to stop for this week 
Um, I will say that next week we continue on the, the recent trend of going back and finding a second album from an artist and then doing one artist that is brand new. In this case, we're going to be doing Simon and Garfunkel for the second time, Sounds of Silence by Matt, and then I Never Loved a Man Like I Love You by Aretha Franklin. That's the second Aretha Franklin album by Josh. And then I will be doing The Stooges, uh, self-titled album by The Stooges, uh, and that will be me covering that. So that is next week's show. And uh, it's one of the last episodes before we start hitting a run of you know, seeing the same type of bands, you know, back to back to back, because the top 50 or so albums does uh, overrepresent certain artists. They are great, but it is fun to continue to delve into artists we won't be seeing later. Uh, the, any bio, thoughts? the bios are basically going away. The, yeah, I was going to say, the bios are going to start disappearing, and it's going to be a lot more of the commentary that you you know and love as a Coming the Stacks fan, Matt. So that's what's coming. And I'll be able to go deep into the archives for different performances and stuff like that. So uh, thanks again for listening to us. And for actually, since this is episode 15, for listening to us throughout all of the first 15 episodes. And if you are a completist, also the three cleaning the attics we are going to change the name of that <laughs> next time we do bonus episodes to avoid um too similar uh, uh terminology but uh even if you've listened to just this episode or beyond thanks so much for being a listener check us out at at combing the on twitter at the end of this you'll hear all the different platforms we're on uh, the youtube channel is almost finished and we have a pretty cool idea for um for some albums that are outside of the top 100 that we're thinking of, and we may just suddenly drop some magic on you one of these days uh, out of the clear blue. So keep your eyes open for a surprise from the CTS crew. Uh, But for uh, Josh and Matt, this is John. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Let's hope the nice weather keeps going, and uh, see you soon. Be well. It's been our pleasure to have hosted you for another episode of Combing the Stacks, but the time has come for us to turn off the lights and send you home with a fond farewell. Before you leave, remember that new episodes are available every Thursday on a variety of streaming platforms, including Anchor, Apple, Google, Spotify, Overcast, and Pocket Casts. You can email with questions, comments, or general feedback at combingthestacks at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at Combing The. We'd also like to give a shout out to Defy The Mall, who performs our theme song, Coastin, as well as Red Bellows, who are creating the ambiance you're currently experiencing by way of their track, Phonetic. Have a great night. <laughs>